0: 1 Corinthians thirteen, eleven says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Christian discipleship is the process of becoming more and more the human beings that we are meant to be. By becoming more and more like Jesus, the creator God made human. And there are a lot of metaphors that we could use for Christian discipleship. We could use the metaphor of a journey. We could use the metaphor of being molded like clay. But here in the letter to the first century church uh, in Corinth, Paul uses the developmental metaphor. Christian discipleship is like growing up. We learn and we grow into maturity. And this is an important metaphor to me because from my perspective, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but I feel like there's a lot of immature Christianity in the United States. A lot of us don't have childlike faith, we just have childish faith. And this immature faith is holding us back From reflecting the winsome beauty and transformative power of the gospel. This is a large part of what compels me to be a teacher in the church. I want to see people's faith mature. I want to see the love of Jesus so overflow from our lives that people run to Jesus. Amen? Isn't that what we want? In order to do this, we have to talk about relationships. Because it's going to be in and through our relationships that we reflect the love of Jesus that we've received. It's in and through our relationships that we will demonstrate love. And by doing so, grow and mature as human beings made in the image of God who look more and more like Jesus. So this morning, we are kicking off a new sermon series called DTR, Exploring Relationship Dynamics. In this series, you're gonna hear from our entire uh, diverse teaching team, uh, not just myself, but also Shida and Emily and Durr, and we're gonna explore diverse aspects of relationships and types of relationships that we have. We recognize that no one teaching series could be comprehensive, but we want to be as helpful and as thorough as we can be given the time that we have. That's why this week, I want us to think about how we approach relationships. Our relational framework, if you will. And I want to challenge us, I want to challenge some of the very simplistic but common thinking that we have about relationships. I want us to draw from scripture, draw wisdom from scripture, and from scholarship, and from our own lived experiences. In fact, in scripture, there is a very important wisdom tradition the books of proverbs ecclesiastes and job so today i want to draw from that biblical wisdom tradition and from some wisdom from a rabbi and psychologist named edwin friedman and i want us to lay a foundation with this message of exploring how relationship dynamics work i'm calling this message it's complicated after the ubiquitous Facebook relationship status. But before we take a look at some examples from the biblical wisdom tradition, would you pray with me for the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, we definitely need you in our relationships. We need you to flow in and through our relationships. We need your wisdom to guide us in how to Love one another like Jesus loves us. Lord, I pray that in this message, you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to zoom out and to see our relationships uh, at the macro level, to see how they all interconnect, how we are all interdependent on one another. Help us to see beyond ourselves and be able to give of ourselves in our relationships the way that Jesus gave of himself. And I pray that you would be with me, this message would would be your words through me, and I pray that it would land. Holy Spirit, help us to understand and to comprehend what it is that you are teaching us this morning, whatever that is in our respective lives. In all this we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, so. As we embark on this new teaching series, we want to start with a firm foundation. Scripture, trusted scholarship, our own lived experiences. So, to start, I want to draw our attention to the biblical wisdom tradition. That's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Now, these three books act as a sort of dialogue with one another. The book of Proverbs presents many comparisons between competing realities in our lives. For example, Proverbs tells us there is a path to life and there is a path that leads to death. Proverbs tells us there's a path to wealth and there's a path that leads to poverty. Proverbs tells us there's a path to righteousness and a path that leads to wickedness. And this makes life seem very neat and tidy sometimes. So it's a bit ironic that Proverbs starts with this statement about its own purpose in chapter 1, one of those purposes is to bring subtlety to the simple. And I like to recommend resources uh, that have helped me and as I've grappled with ideas in the Bible. And so, you know, my hope is that it will help you as much as it's helped me. And so the first resource I'll recommend to you this morning is an episode of Rob Bell's podcast, The Robcast. He did an episode on these two words uh, from Proverbs. It's episode 123, and it's called The Simple and the Subtle. These two words are really important, but I'm not going to dive into all of the nuances of the original language. Let me just say that they can be translated in a lot of different ways. So a lot of different versions of the English uh, translations of the Bible, they render them differently. For example, I'm using the King James Version that renders it subtlety, that first word, subtlety, But the NIV uses prudence. I don't think we use prudence as often as we use subtlety. So I went with the King James, even though I don't really recommend the King James to modern English readers. But the New Living Translation uses the word insight. And the New Revised Standard Version uses the word shrewdness. But my favorite translation by far is the Common English Bible. It says, They make the naive mature. And I think that fits really well with Paul's developmental metaphor for the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians. What we want, what our goal is, is to grow, to mature. We want wisdom from Scripture to make us more and more whole persons, more equipped to approach our various relationships with Christ-like love. Proverbs sometimes helps us make the naive mature, By placing competing wisdom side by side. Showing that there's not always one simple way of approaching relationships. Here's a famous example from chapter 26. Verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And then verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, which one is it, Bible? That's what I want to scream. The point is, it's complicated, isn't it? Depending on the circumstances and a number of other factors, one could apply or misapply either piece of advice. But I think that the Proverbs are not entirely sufficient on their own to make the naive mature. To do this, I think it needs the other two books in the wisdom tradition. Ecclesiastes and Job, where Proverbs tends to simplify the wisdom tradition, the other two books intentionally complicated. For example, Proverbs can sometimes paint an overly simplistic picture of wealth and poverty, like in chapter 10, verse 4, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich. And in verse 15, the wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their destruction. But Ecclesiastes brings another perspective. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, all their days they work, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So Ecclesiastes comes along and says to Proverbs, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? But perhaps the best example of how the biblical wisdom tradition challenges our simplistic notions about how things should be is the book of Job. Now, Two of the best resources I can recommend on the book of Job are, there's these two great videos that the Bible Project created. One is kind of an overview of the structure of the book and the interpretation of the book, and the other is a beautifully illustrated uh, explanation of the book in the context of the other two books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I highly recommend those videos, and I highly recommend the book Is God to Blame by Greg Boyd. Great resources. For a long time, I thought that the book of Job was about the sovereignty of God. I thought that it teaches that God can do whatever God pleases, even inflicting horrible suffering on a person like Job. And I thought that the conclusion of Job was basically God telling Job, shut up and stop complaining. But resources like Is God to Blame by Greg Boyd have helped me see that 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 really isn't what Job is about at all. The beginning of The book of Job, we're introduced to him in a very uh, interesting setting. We're introduced to Job in the divine council in the heavenlies, where God has called all the uh, sons of God, these angelic beings, to his court. And we're introduced to Job as God brags about his blamelessness. Job is perfect. Job is blameless. And this prompts a figure to come forward called the Satan, which means the adversary or the accuser. And the Satan accuses God and Job. Basically, the Satan claims that Job will only, only serve God because God blesses Job and protects him. But if God removed that protection and removed those blessings, Job would not serve God faithfully. And the story says that God permitted the Satan to inflict suffering on Job His children all die in a tragic accident. His land and his property are destroyed. And finally, Job's own health is afflicted. And in his anguish, in Job's anguish and grief, he is visited by four friends. And I noticed the air quotes. And the bulk of the book of Job is this poetic discourse between Job and the friends about God's justice, human suffering, and righteousness. But Job's friends, for them, the world is very simple. Very black or white. You are suffering in this incredible way. It must be the result of your own sin. Neither they nor Job had ever been made aware of what we as readers have been made aware of, which is the whole heavenly court scene with God and the Satan. So uh, the whole book of Job throws a monkey wrench into the neat and tidy system of blessings and cursings that flow from righteousness or wickedness. We know, as readers, that Job is blameless, that he's innocent. But they don't know that. And all throughout the book, they're arguing about the justice of God. How can this be just? When God finally shows up at the end of the book, many of us are taught to interpret what God says as essentially, I'm God... I can do whatever I please, shut up, stop complaining. But that's actually not what God says. Instead, God takes Job on this sort of virtual tour of the universe. And he points out that the universe is immensely complex. Here's what Greg Boyd says about it. In the concluding speeches, God no more acknowledges Job's perspective than he does the friend's perspective. Rather, he refutes both perspectives by alluding to two facts. Human ignorance about the vastness and complexity of the cosmos and human ignorance about the enormity of chaos that God must contend with. So the wisdom tradition of the Bible really does make make the naive mature and give subtlety to the simple. It does this in part by teaching us humility in light of God's vast wisdom and it challenges our simplistic thinking in light of the immense complexity of the creation. So here's another way that, that Greg Boyd puts it. He says, behind every event in history lies an impenetrably vast matrix of interlocking free decisions made by humans and angels. We experience life as largely arbitrary because we cannot fathom the causal chains that lie behind every particular event. In Christ, God's character and purposes are not mysterious. But the vast complexity of causal chains is mysterious. The mystery of evil, therefore, is not about, it is about an unfathomably complex and war-torn creation. Not about God's character and purpose in creation. See, this has been really helpful for me. Because at points in my life when I've experienced challenges or even suffering, there have been many times when the pat answers and the cliches of church folks just made things worse. The God's God's got it all under control, and God is good all the time. That didn't really feel good in the moment. It actually felt more like a punch in the gut. When people have just suffered a tragic loss, or people are in the midst of challenges in their lives. It's not the time to talk about how sovereign and good God is. It's the time to sit with them in that grief, in that time. And that's actually what the friends of Job did for a little while, before they opened their mouth and started spitting all their whack theology. But for far too many of us, including myself, we've not been taught to sit with people in their grief and to not try to paper over it with platitudes. So, it occurs to me that the biblical wisdom tradition teaches us at least this. Uncompromising dogmatism and rigid black or white thinking is a hallmark of immaturity. But the movement from simplistic thinking to the capacity to engage complexity or the movement from reductionism to nuance is a hallmark of maturity. Did you catch that? No. <laughs> Tyson caught it. This is particularly important for us to hold onto as we begin to talk about relationships. You know why? Because relationships are complex. There, is a, there are vast matrices of causal chains that lie behind all of our relationships. If we are stuck in simplistic thinking, we are far more likely to misunderstand the dynamics in and among our relationships. And that will lead to less Christ-like love and more unnecessary pain and hurt and conflict. When we were children, we thought like children. We reasoned like children. But as we grow and mature, we need to put away the reasoning of childhood. Like all growth and all maturity, the movement from simplistic thinking to engaging complexity is a struggle against resistance. Remember the analogy of exercise? Muscles only grow if you subject them to resistance. So one of the most powerful forces that we will have to resist, and this is the the big force in our lives that it often remains hidden, is Western culture's powerful philosophy of individualism. Individualism is like the water we swim in, the air we breathe. We absorb it every time we watch commercials that say, you deserve a break today. We absorb it all the time. We are constantly taught and conditioned to think of ourselves individualistically. Western culture indoctrinates us this way. And even it even seeps into our thinking and our reasoning about our relationships. This morning, uh, I want to challenge that, that construct, that philosophy of individualism. I am convinced that one of the ways that you and I will grow and mature in our understanding of relationships is to break out of simplistic individualistic thinking and begin to see ourselves as part of relational systems. So what I'm gonna talk about this morning is systems thinking, which is kind of a technical term, but I'm gonna break it down. And I'm gonna give you an example to start. Here's an example from uh, my wife and I's life. When Oshita and I began to talk about marriage, we were just dating, I think it was before we got engaged, we began to realize that for us to become a healthy couple, we were not going to be able to depend on our families of origin for guidance, for wisdom, for support. Because our families of origins were dysfunctional. So we were going to have to build something from scratch. And in this process, we had to analyze what was the dysfunction in our families of origin. And I remember reading this book, or starting to read this book, I haven't finished it yet, called Generation to Generation by Dr. Edward Friedman. He's a rabbi and a psychotherapist. And he uses an analogy in the book that gave me such insight into Oshida's family dynamics, the system that she was a part of. Here's how the analogy goes. Dr. Friedman says, imagine a set of conduits connected in an asymmetrical pattern. Let's assume that one of the pipes becomes blocked, causing pressure in the rest of the system to increase. Eventually, if the added pressure cannot be redistributed in order for the system to stay stable, one pipe or another will have to spring a leak. But the pipe so chosen will not necessarily be the one that is structurally the weakest. It will be rather the conduit whose position in the overall system caused it to pick up most of the pressure. Did you catch that? Let's say that in this analogy the water in the pipes is anxiety. And this anxiety is being flushed through the relational system. Friedman continues his analogy. There are family members who seem to function as the anxiety trap for their system. And who regularly go to their form of a plumber to be disgorged so that they can protect the rest of their system again. Now I know that the medical professionals among us, you know, Kirsten, Andrew, if he was here, I know that they would identify or they would recognize this way of thinking if I referred to the identified patient. Friedman teaches that we may only interact with one person but that person is part of a relational system. The identified patient in a family system is often not the weakest person in that system, but on the contrary, they're often the one who's taking responsibility for the entire system. That's usually the person that manifests the symptom. This is like how an overfunctioning organ or an under-functioning organ can cause problems all throughout the body, right? So the symptom, the presenting symptom, might be in a completely different part of the body from the malfunctioning organ. This systems thinking way of viewing our relationships, I think, has a lot of cash value. So I'm gonna talk about the cash value. One of the first things I think about when I think about why this way of thinking matters is I think about scapegoating. Scapegoating is when we place all the blame and all the responsibility on individuals rather than addressing the multiple factors and forces that produced that behavior. Don't we do this? Don't we do this all the time? We do this all the time. Scapegoating is one of the ways that a community absolves itself of blame or responsibility. It's not our fault. It's all this one person's fault or this one group's fault. That's what we tell ourselves at least. We can see this happening in families. For example, a family might say, a family might blame everything on that one parent that left. It's all that parent's fault for leaving. Or that one child that just won't behave. It's all that child's fault. We can see this in our churches. We blame the pastor. We blame the board. We blame that gossipy secretary. And it's all their fault. We can see this in our cities, in our neighborhoods. We blame immigrants. We blame low-income families. We can see this in our nation at large. We blame conservatives, liberals, farmers, bankers. It really doesn't matter, as long as somebody can take all the blame, right? As long as one group or one person can, can just sum up all of our hatred and all of our rage and all of our dis, dis, you know, dissatisfaction, as long as we can get rid of it in that person or group, then we'll be okay. Then everything will return to the perfectly harmonious way it was before. Right? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It never was perfectly harmonious. But do you see how when we begin to recognize that people are interrelated, and are formed by relational systems, we can no longer buy into the lie of individualism. The lie that tells us that every person is an island responsible for their own failures or success. Maybe if we started resisting the force of individualism in our lives and started recognizing the role of relational systems, we could work towards addressing systemic injustices. Thank you. Did I get an amen? Amen. I thought I heard an amen. (laughs) Individualism tells us that mass incarceration is the result of disproportionate criminality of black and brown people. Not unjust mandatory sentencing minimums, over-policing of black and brown communities, and implicit racial bias in the judicial system. Which one do you think it is? Individualism tells us that families displaced from their neighborhoods is just the result of healthy housing markets. Not decades of neglect, driving down the value, property value so that it can be bought up for pennies on the dollar, redeveloped, and then sold at a thousand percent markup. That's gentrification, by the way. Individualism tells us that abortion is the result of an individual's sinful choice. Not the result of a community's failure to resource and support young men and women. Which one do you think it is? When we begin to think systemically, we stop placing all the blame on people who are part of broken systems. Instead, we're able to recognize what are called leverage points. There are points in the system where we can press in and make changes that that affect the entire system. I don't have time to go into all the leverage points because they're innumerable, but I'll give you a few resources that have helped me. I recommend this book all the time. You've probably heard me recommend it before. You'll probably hear me recommend it again. It's Disunity in Christ by Dr. Christina Cleveland, who's a social psychologist, and the subtitle of the book is Unmasking the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. she wants us to see how there are sociological, relational forces at work in systems which divide us, which can keep us from understanding one another and loving one another with Christ's love. Excellent book. Another book that I found helpful, it's actually written for pastors, but I think that it applies more widely than that, is called Navigating the Nonsense, Church Conflict and Triangulation. Now, Triangulation is a really interesting concept and I'll let let Dr. Friedman define it. The basic law of emotional triangles is that when any two parts of a system become uncomfortable with each other, they will triangle in or focus upon a third person or issue as a way of stabilizing their own relationship with one another. So a great example of this is, dad, tell my brother to stop talking to me. That's triangulation. Tell your brother to stop talking to yourself. <laughs> Another one is, Becky, what is the deal with Megan? Like, like, don't bring Megan into this. What has she got to do with this? So uh, recognizing and combating triangulation is a tool in our tool belt that we can use when we recognize that we are part of relational systems. So these are just two examples of resources that I think help us uh, press in on leverage points in a system to affect the entire system. Finally, when we think systemically, we can press into the God-given power and unity that comes from mutuality and interdependence. Actually, the whole scriptures are teaching us this, from Genesis to Revelation. The scriptures teach us that God has given us to one another, To reflect God's own nature as a community of love. In the beginning, God said it was not good for human beings to be alone. And that wasn't just an endorsement for marriage. That was an endorsement for community. And all the way in Revelation, the vision of the new creation culminates not with a bunch of individuals, but with one beautiful spotless bride, presented to Christ for eternal shalom. But I think In all of the scriptures, one of the clearest examples where we're taught to think systemically about our relationships is the metaphor of the body of Christ. I love what Dr. Christina Cleveland says about the body of Christ. She says, the brilliant and challenging metaphor of the body of Christ preaches the need to engage in cross-cultural relationships because other groups are our lifelines. If each of our church groups represents one part of the body, it follows that we need to remain connected to each other in order to receive the information and nourishment required for survival. Listen to this. The metaphor of the body of Christ explicitly articulates the need to value different perspectives, to be ideologically interdependent. We need when we encounter cross-cultural situations with the belief that our cultural group is holding one piece of the puzzle, we can confidently make our contribution while also looking for and valuing the contribution of other groups, that other groups make. And as a result, the barriers between us and them begin to fall down. So individualism, to sum up, individualism has robbed us of our ability to see one another as members of one body. But systems thinking and viewing ourselves as part of relational systems helps us to remember that we are all in this together. We are each other's lifelines. So, Throughout this series, as we explore many different types of relationships, marriage, friendships, um, what else? I think there was another one. We're gonna gonna tackle a lot of different types of relationships. But throughout this series, what I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you to take inventory of how you approach relationships. Do you approach them by default individualistically? without viewing the way our relationships are formed by systems. And I want to challenge you to embrace the movement from naivete to nuance, from simplistic thinking to systems thinking. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful thing called the body of Christ. We thank you for the way that you have knit us together, our diverse parts, how you have given us to one another as gifts, and how we need one another to see you more clearly, to see your beautiful diversity. And I thank you for the way in which you, in your own being, model for us a community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a circle dance of love for eternity. I pray that we as a church... Would begin to see our world through the lens of systems. That we begin to see one another as people a part of relational systems. To see our contribution and where we can press in on leverage points and make a difference in the larger systems that we inhabit systems of our church, systems of our neighborhood, systems of our city, systems of our nation and our world. God, I pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit. And help us, guide us with wisdom to be agents of shalom wherever we are in all of our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.